Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is the penultimate, which is a fancy way to say second to last, the penultimate installment of The Underwear Chronicles. I promised 14 stories. This is story number 13. There's actually two other stories that will be in the book, in addition to a bunch of other shorter bits and the Underwear Hall of Fame. Um, those you can find in the book when the book comes out. It's getting really, really close. We actually, as of November 17th, it is in, it's been, I'm actually waiting the final proof so I can see the physical book, which is really, really exciting. And this week I have spent the entire week reading all of the stories out loud again and recording them for the audiobook version of I See Lincoln's Underpants. So that is all very close. If you're listening to this in November, it's going to be out. If you are listening to this in the future, maybe it's out already. This episode is about Garrett Morgan, who is someone we've covered in the show before, one of my favorite people of all time. But this is a much deeper dive, and the last time, I think my friend Brian actually narrated it. This time it's me with a whole bunch more information. I can't wait to share it with you. Garrett Morgan, let's go. While growing up near Paris, Kentucky, Garrett Morgan's dresser wasn't filled with the soft white drawers he'd heroically show the world later in life. Just as his underwear and pajama selection left a lot to be desired, the early circumstances of his life didn't offer a plethora of options either. Days brought hard work, probably while wearing scratchy burlap undies, which were the common, quick, homemade underwear solution of the day. Night might have brought much-needed sleep, but it was still in those same uncomfortable undies. A home full of older and younger siblings meant most of those undies had been, or were bound to be, someone else's undies. This is the way it was with pretty much everything else in the house, too. For the first part of their lives, Garrett's parents had been enslaved. When the American Civil War brought an end to slavery in the United States, Mr. and Mrs. Morgan remained near the plantation where they had once lived. When baby Garrett came along in 1877, they were working as sharecroppers and raising a constantly growing family. Sharecropping is mostly what it sounds like, though people were typically pretty loose with the whole sharing part. Landowners allowed tenant farmers to grow crops on land in exchange for a large share of profits. In most cases, the landowners helped themselves to the largest share, though the tenants did the labor. Between the hard work of farming, teaching, and feeding 11 growing kids who probably ate more than their fair share of the sharecropped crops, Garrett's parents had plenty to worry about. They may have wanted to give their kids an education, but it wasn't something that they could easily afford. In general, public schools were a thing of the future for Garrett's time and place. Though some larger cities might have had full public education available, it was not the norm. It wouldn't even be until Garrett was 41 years old in 1918 that American children were legally required to finish elementary school at all. His occasional schooling, which he crammed in between working on the farm, amounted to a sixth grade education. Had there been more free public school to show up to after sixth grade, walking through the door wouldn't have been a problem. He was always looking for new ways to feed his brain. Early on, Garrett figured out that using the brain in his head was his superpower. The boy had a knack for figuring out how things worked and solving problems when they didn't. At 14, he packed a few shirts, a pair of pants, and some undies that he wouldn't have to share, and went north to Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Alone in the city, the barely teenage boy soon found work as a handyman. Earnings were spent on two things, staying alive and learning. After paying for food, a room, and the occasional new article of clothing, he was still a growing young man after all, he used the rest of the money to hire private tutors. Obviously, Garrett was responsible in addition to being smart. These teachers for hire helped him stitch together the pieces of a formal education to complement the real-world experience he was wrapping himself in already. A few years later, he made the fateful decision to move farther north to Cleveland, Ohio. He had heard that the largest clothing factory in the world was here, in addition to dozens of other shops filled with thousands of people who cut, stitched, and sewed everything wearable under the sun and moon. Each day, a never-ending parade of baby dresses and men's suits and women's skirts and an assortment of underwear were finished, packed, and shipped out to cover rear ends all across the country. Built on the banks of Lake Erie, Cleveland was a major center in America's garment industry, so it was a good place to be for a smart kid with a mechanical mind. Of course, no one knew what brilliance was swimming around between the ears of this new arrival, so Garrett started at the bottom sweeping floors. He quickly found a way to stand out. While he swept up the fabric scraps and threads, he noticed a problem. The constant use of the sewing machines around him loosened the belts, which drove the engines. This slowed down the people working, since the machines required regular maintenance and repair. Not only was he able to repair the machines, but he devised a solution that kept the belt tight all day. Before long, he was an official shop mechanic. In 1901, he sold that first invention, a sewing machine belt tightener. Garrett was a man who liked to solve problems, so it was the first of many. Soon after, he was playing around with some chemicals in search of a way to lubricate thread so that it wouldn't burn when pulled quickly through a machine. When he casually wiped the new goop from his hand on a rag with curly fibers, Garrett was amazed to see the little ringlets and tangles completely straightened. Wanting to confirm what he observed about the potion, he asked to borrow a neighbor's curly-haired dog. When the animal returned home, the owner didn't recognize the little pup. Garrett's creation had magically straightened the hair and temporarily left it looking like another dog entirely. With some more tweaking, Garrett realized his concoction would make a great hair straightener for people too. Eventually, he sold the hair tonic under the company name of G.A. Morgan Hair Refining Company, but for the time being, he kept working in the clothing shops, slowly moving towards his destiny. When he took a job with a new employer, he met a young woman named Mary Hassock. She was a seamstress, and before long, they were practically stitched together at the side. Unfortunately, prejudice found them. The shop's owner told them he wouldn't employ a black man who was in a romantic relationship with a white woman. Garrett was told to end it or find work somewhere else. Garrett quit on the spot. As usual, he had better ideas anyway. Soon, they'd sew together their love, energy, and collective batch of skills to open a new business together. They found their feet with a sewing machine repair shop to serve the many factories in Cleveland, but soon hit their stride when they later opened the Morgan Skirt Shop. Garrett could do nearly anything with a sewing machine. The fancy zigzag stitches and custom machine refinements he created made some of the most desirable and durable skirts, pants, and undergarments people could ever wish to cover themselves with. 
As sales took off, their staff of workers grew by the dozens. Long gone were the lean days of his youth. Garrett and Mary built a life filled with meaning, success, children, and even a few inventions on the side. While his first inventions were for convenience and productivity, his next one would save lives. One major problem that plagued clothing factories at the turn of the century was fire. A 1911 blaze at New York City's Triangle Shirtwaist Company made national news when it claimed the lives of 146 factory workers, mostly young women. While this was one of the largest factory fires in history, it wasn't the only one. Eventually, industrial disasters like this would lead to strict safety regulations for workers, better emergency escapes, and even the exit signs you still see in public buildings today. Garrett knew firsthand how devastating fires could be. Back home in Kentucky, he had seen neighbors lose everything when shacks burned down. In 1909, grown-up Garrett would watch another neighbor's place go up in flames. Only this time, it was a Cleveland clothing factory, like the very ones that he had spent many years inside. Along with everyone else on the street, he stood watching helplessly. He wasn't alone in realizing that there was no way for a would-be rescuer to safely enter a smoke-filled building, but he was alone in deciding that he would do something about it. When he put the finishing touches on his safety hood and stuck his head inside for the first time, he might have scared the pants off of his family. The world was a long way from the outlandish costumes of Star Wars or any other science fiction fantasy movies in 1914, but Garrett's new getup would be a perfect on-screen fit for even the most eccentric modern space movie franchise. The large canvas mask covered his entire head and came to a sharp point at the top. He could peer through small windows near his eyes, and to prevent smoke from getting inside, the hood fit tightly around his shoulders. Finally, from the area around the chin, two gigantic elephant trunk-like tubes protruded and hung almost to the ground. While it might appear nightmarish to some, Garrett had dreamt up a new gas mask, one which would prove to be, by far, the most effective to date. There's nothing more convincing than a little thrilling drama to show people why they need a new invention, and Garrett knew this. Outside of firehouses across the country, Garrett set up a big tent, which he filled with smoke from wood, tar, chemicals, even animal manure. Then, confused firefighters watched him dress up like a superfan 90 years too early for a Star Wars cosplay convention. And once in costume, Spaceman Morgan would disappear into the tent, tendered with twigs and tar and teeming with terrible poop smoke. Onlookers expected to be rescuing the man in the mask from suffocation within seconds. But when he strolled out smiling 20 minutes later, the firemen instead opened their wallets. Many rescue workers and fire departments wanted safety hoods for themselves, and Garrett was happy to oblige. They didn't put out the welcome mat everywhere, though. When he visited some places in the American South, he found people unwilling to buy an invention, no matter how great, from a black man. This made Garrett angry, but he resolved to sell his device despite the ignorance and hate. To fool the willfully foolish even further, he simply hired a white man to pretend to be the inventor. Masked Garrett still did the old stinky smoke tent trick to prove the invention worked, and still cashed the checks for the sales of the life-saving solution. Despite the ignorance and injustice he saw in the world, Garrett was committed to his own success, and one key 
was a good night's sleep. Most evenings, he'd slip into his long, white underwear-like pajamas and tuck himself into bed feeling pretty good about things. The little boy from Kentucky had businesses, a great new invention, a beautiful family, and even had a phone, one of the first in Cleveland. So it might be ironic that this very phone woke him up in the middle of the night on July 24th, 1916. The frantic voice on the other end of the line told him there was a terrible disaster at the waterworks tunnel being dug under Lake Erie. The tunnel collapsed with workers trapped inside, and when that happened, there was a release of poisonous gas into the tunnel's airway. It was hard to know how many people were still alive, but it was certain that there were some. First responders ventured into the pressurized tunnel to help, but were overcome by the noxious fumes and had to be rescued themselves. No one was sure what could be done, but one of the men on the scene had recalled seeing Garrett's mask in action. This man figured if the safety hood could keep someone safe in a tent full of ammonia and manure smoke, then maybe it could help someone find the tunnel's survivors despite the fetid fumes. Garrett agreed. There was no time to waste. There wasn't even time to put on clothes. Those long white drawers he had donned before departing for dreamland would have to do. Indecency doesn't matter in a life or death ordeal. Arriving quickly enough to make Batman jealous, two men appeared at the tunnel entrance with gas masks in tow. It was Garrett and his brother. Neither was wearing proper clothes. Undeterred and without a hint of embarrassment, the pair threw the cumbersome canvas cowls over their heads and ran into the stinky darkness of the tunnel. The fresh air on the outside was of little consolation for the people who paced and prayed there for what seemed like hours. When they finally spied a figure that looked like an alien in underwear carrying a full-grown man as if he were a sleeping baby, the crowd was again able to breathe as easily as Garrett. The safety hood was a success. Everyone who survived the gaseous explosion yet remained trapped inside was soon rescued by the Morgan brothers. In the months that followed, many Americans would find themselves overseas on the battle lines of World War I. A sinister new technology debuted during this conflict. Weaponized gases were used to suffocate and harm large groups of people at one time. Garrett's safety hood was a big step towards a new gas mask that was used to keep people safe in the face of this chemical warfare that was raging around them. With each invention and business victory, Garrett was able to focus more on the things that mattered most to him. In 1919, he founded the Cleveland Call, one of the most important newspapers for black communities in America. And in 1923, he patented his most famous invention, the three-position traffic signal. This revolutionary invention led to our modern-day red, yellow, and green lights, and it also led to another financial windfall for Garrett. General Electric, the company founded by Thomas Edison, paid him a staggering $40,000 for the rights. Despite the near-constant successes and occasional heroic rescues, Garrett still witnessed and experienced racism. Barred from joining a country club in the area, he used part of his profits to purchase land and founded Ohio's first country club for black citizens. When villainous members of the Ku Klux Klan tried to intimidate Garrett and his friends by burning a cross on the land, he and his brothers fought back and chased them off. Whatever Garrett said or did must have worked because it's reported that the terrorists never came back. When Garrett passed away in 1963, he left a legacy of creativity and drive, not to mention the financial security his gifts brought to his surviving family. 
He'd be the first to tell you that he didn't get the honor that he deserved in his lifetime. Many are surprised to learn that he was never compensated nor acknowledged by national hero commissions of the day for his daring tunnel rescue. Despite that, he firmly knew who he was and how he mattered in his America. His modest tombstone in Cleveland reads, By his deeds, he shall be remembered. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll have more information about the book very, very soon. And in the meantime, we actually have a new episode coming up in just a couple weeks. It's been really fun to work on. I've had a lot of people suggest, uh, actually send me emails and say, hey, we would love some video game history. And I found two really great video game stories uh, that I can't wait to share. I've been excited. I've been thinking about it for months now, Uh, but it's It's actually in process, so I can't wait to share it with you. In the meantime, I'd love to know if you can guess which video game stories I'm going to share. It's going to be two, two different people uh, and two really interesting stories. So stay tuned and live with that cliffhanger for a few weeks or just until you press play on the next episode if you're listening to this in the future. Thanks a lot. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious, The Underwear Chronicles, which will soon be a book called I see Lincoln's underpants.